Welcome to It Just So Happened. I am Richard Paulsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 4th of September. That's before we delve into some of the history of the town where today's show is taking place. Yes, the capital of Scotland for hundreds of years, up until 1437. It's Dunfermline! We are performing as a show in the third Out With Festival, a six-day festival of comedy, film, theatre, literature and live music, all happening in Scotland's one-time capital. Our venue tonight is the Andrew Carnegie Birthplace Museum, which holds 5,000 objects from around the world related to the local-born philanthropist Andrew Carnegie, his family and his benefactions, and also on domestic life and the linen industry in the 19th century. The museum was shortlisted in 2019 for the Family Friendly Museum Award. And we have a superb lineup of Scottish comedians on tonight's panel, some of whom have lived through quite a bit of history themselves. So please welcome Vladimir McTavish, yeah. Jamie Dalfish, Daniel Downing, and Bruce Fumi. So our first guest tonight is Vladimir McTavish. Now it's a pleasure to welcome Vladimir back again for what is his third show for this podcast after being in Glasgow in March on the first of two shows at the Brighton Fringe in May. He's a veteran of the Scottish comedy circuit, having been going for longer than perhaps even he can remember. Uh, his show at the Edinburgh Fringe last month was called 60 Minutes to Save the World and offered some comic solutions to stopping humanity from falling into the abyss. Perhaps he will share some of his insights in this show too. Over to you. Yes, uh, that didn't work. Oh. That 60 minutes of time to show me my life for the this has not Shows you can't change what we're going. Um, on the, it just happened the 4th of September, uh, 1998, uh, two guys at Stanford University invented or founded Google, which is just as well, because if they hadn't, this show would have zero content. <laughs> 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 Nothing about things that have happened on the 4th of September and we'd be asking the audience about in film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously, I remember uh, 1998, but I think he was really impressed with like, this show. And, Every time we do it, we'll look back at certain dates of the year. Um, and I think, God, that's just I remember that. <laughs> so on the 4th of September 1964, the 4th Road Bridge opened. And I don't only remember that, I remember the new 4th Road Bridge. Yeah, and you had to get a ferry over the 4th. More depressing than that, I remember 1962. Right, 1962 was going to be the last Glasgow tram. I was on a travel party and it wasn't the last one. <laughs> so I'm actually older than the last time in Glasgow. Yeah, it's true, Glasgow City Council decided that trams were, uh, they were the past. Outmoded form of transport, no point in having it anymore. And then 50 years later, in the City Council, decided that trams were the future. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I've never been on one of those classroom times, and they were rickety old things. They were rickety old things that had been around since World War I, and they were still faster than the brand new things that I've been So that's one of the advantages of getting older, is, um, it's not just a thing, I can compare issues because I'm 62 and I'm from Glasgow, which means statistically I died five years ago. The same as on this day, right? 64, four through Bryce opened and it became quite quickly a traffic jam. And he decided this traffic jam is just getting too much. And so two years ago, on the 4th of September, we opened the Queen City Crossing. Which meant they had a brand new traffic jam <laughs> a mile to the west of the old traffic jam. <laughs> it's funny sitting in this room tonight, uh, oblivious as to what's going on in the wider world. Can I tell you that the 4th of September 2019 may well go down in history as being a very significant day indeed? I think it may be the day we saw the shortest ever name of a British Prime Minister. I'm certainly holding it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's great to see democracy being taken back from Boris Johnson. It's not just Boris Johnson, it's everyone who's succeeded. <laughs> Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Fogg in the same government. It's unbelievable, even PG, the question I brought up. <laughs> Michael Gold, because we, you know, tonight we're engaging in Parliament, and this, this won't go down, this is a significant thing. Um, we're debating making no deal with the Leagues. We've all been to No deal is the worst case scenario. And told me to put Michael Gold in charge of no deal. <laughs> and I didn't know that Michael Gold in charge of no deal is the worst case scenario. <laughs> this is yet another time Michael Gold has ended up in a job he's totally unsuitable for. Because his previous job, you might remember, was the environment secretary. The guy who's like, in fact, but even more of the problem, you'll remember that Michael Job was previous job for the private sector with Minister for Education. Yeah, Michael Gove. He looks like me, he should be around with him as my ways of a private So I think, and I sincerely hope, that 4th of September 2019 is going to be more significant than any 4th of September that I've mentioned so far. I'm not having something. The only other thing that happened in this day that I don't remember was in 1882 when Thomas Edison built the first ever commercial electricity generating station. And if I did that, we would be here. All of this technology would frankly work. Wouldn't work had it not been the 4th of September 1882. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to attempt a few more 4th of September's in history between talks. So I'd like to introduce John Ogilvy. He died 4th of September 1676. He was a map maker. Now he was born at Kirribur in Angus in November 1600. And after the family moved to London, his gentleman father was imprisoned for bankruptcy or debt. So John supported the family by selling needles and spangles. 
He won a minor prize in the lottery, enough to settle his father's debts and get him an apprenticeship with a dance master. So he danced masks at court, but his career was cut short after executing a leap and landing badly, leaving him with a permanent limp. He became a dance instructor in the household of Thomas Wentworth, later Earl of Strafford, Charles I's most senior minister. Strafford was sent to Ireland and Ogilvy accompanied him as deputy master and then master of the King's revels. In Dublin, he built the new theatre in St. Werbert Street, and it was the first custom-built theatre in the city and uh, the first Dublin theatre. He then lost his fortune, which was £2,000, and nearly his life during the Irish Rebellion in 1641. And the King reluctantly agreed to Parliament's demand to have Strafford executed in May 1641. He served briefly as a soldier and survived being shipwrecked on his return to England towards the end of the Civil War. So he was penniless again and without a patron. So he then started a career translating and publishing the Latin classics. In 1660, Ogilvy was commissioned to write poetry for Charles II's coronation procession. And in 1661, was again made master of the rebels in Ireland and started building another theatre in the Smock Alley. And in 1665, Ogilvy left London when the plague hit. That thought that was a good move, but then in 1666, he lost his entire stock of books in the Great Fire, as well as his shop and house. So his £3,000 worth of books, well, he was just left with £5. His next job was as a sworn viewer, working with professional surveyors to establish the pre-fire property boundaries, and their detailed plan of London was on a scale of 100 feet to an inch and printed on 20 sheets. He then set on a multi-volume collaboration with the Dutch publisher, Jakob von Moers to produce a prospectus of the world with volumes for each of Africa, America, Asia, Europe, and then Great Britain. His map of the Americas included very early depictions of the Carolinas, Maryland, Jamaica, and Barbados. But then he ran out of money again. Uh, Charles II had promised to give him a thousand pounds towards the cost, but the money never realized. But there was enough to seal Ogilvy's reputation by publishing one volume called the Britannia. It was a road atlas of England and Wales and comprised 100 pages of maps of 73 major roads and crossroads, presented in a continuous strip form and to a uniform scale of one inch to a mile. Hills were drawn to show the direction of their incline and the relative steepness of the roads. So it was the first such national road atlas anywhere in Western Europe and depicted about 7,500 miles of roads in total. That was in 1675. So John Ogilvy, who died on this day. Next, our second guest, Jamie Dalgleish. Uh, Jamie won the Scottish Comedian of the Year Award in 2011. Can't believe it's that long ago. I thought it was like three years ago, but uh, still competition. Yeah. <laughs> so as now as a yes, now as a mature student at Strathclyde University, he was eligible to enter the Chortle Student Comedian of the Year competition last year, and he reached the final of that. Uh, Jamie also hosts a history podcast, which is called Humans Are Evil. And he had a show at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe this year under the same name. It's a history show which unearths the most shocking events, actions and characters throughout our past. Uh, Jamie's history lecturer apparently has told him, you're obsessed with the dark side of history, it's rather disturbing. So yeah, uh, this is going to be like in apologies. Uh, no, what I begin with is talking about, uh, well, we'll go to 1585 in the 4th September and uh, Richard Reed died. He was the first of ten people in a village near Montrose who died and it was blamed on witchcraft. 
So I'm going to briefly talk about the Scottish witch hunts and uh, what was what came about as a result of his death. Right, so I don't know if you can imagine taking your mind to a place where Scotland is riven by violence relating to religious prejudice. <laughs> <laughs> Such a thing. Uh, take your mind back to three days ago. Now we'll talk about the Scottish witch hunts uh, back in the 1600s, 16th century. And uh, this is the story of Tibby Smart. Um, uh, she's from not terribly far from Montrose. Um, uh, don't know if you've been to Montrose. I've done a gig there once, and you know, obviously, we've got Forfa nearby, famous for the Brideys, or Bro, famous for the Smokies. I asked if you were there, but Montrose was famous for, and I was a uh, biased heroin, so uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a lot about that part of the world. Uh, but yeah, she was from not, not far from Montrose, and essentially, what had happened. Ten people had wound up dead in this village, and the main culprit was a badger. <laughs> um, it was the main culprit, C uh, CSI, <laughs> <laughs> the sucker of Montrose region had concluded it was a badger. And uh, so the locals went out with dogs uh, to go hunt for this badger through the woods, and poor Tibby Smart walked out, and she had been bucked by the dogs, and that was taken as evidence that she had made a pact with the devil to turn into a badger to kill people. <laughs> and I'm like, if I made a pact with the devil, bare minimum, a wolf. <laughs> bare minimum. Preferably a lion. Badger, bumped. Right? Absolutely bumped. So she was tried, Tibby uh, was tried, and uh, one, one of the, the evidence that was used against her right, was that. There was a thing that apparently witches used to find lost property. If they'd lost uh, you know, some potions or even a purse or whatever it may be, they would put uh, a sieve on top of two shields and spin it round, and that would then point towards the where the lost, lost property was, uh, where somebody lost something. Uh, I tried this in my house. I don't shield, so I used two butter knives <laughs> to find something I'd lost, spin it round, and it, and it actually pointed to the park across from my house where uh, several years ago I did lose something, but that's probably not broadcasting. Witchcraft's <laughs> 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 yeah. career, I think, can be good for that. <laughs> uh, but poor, poor Tibby, uh, she, ended up, she ended up killed, uh, burnt at the stake, uh, for her treachery of turning into a badger. Uh, they, they call it, when you read the old transcripts, uh, a badger in the Scots is called a brock. I mean badger, apparently. It's also the name for Fraserburgh, so I'm glad I call Fraserburgh Badger now, that's what I'm going to refer to Fraserburghs. Uh, there is, like, when you read the stories of the Scottish witch hunts, it's absolutely crazy. Like, I mean, the, the last woman to die was in the year uh, 1727, and we're now talking about, like, the height of the Scottish Enlightenment. At that point, Scotland is known as being, you know, a beacon of the world of tolerance, etc., and yet somebody's still being killed for witchcraft. And the evidence against her, um, she, her daughter was born with deformed hands and feet, and that was taken as evidence that she turned her daughter into a pony, then tried to turn her back, and the process had to be complete. <laughs> that, that, that was taken as evidence. And obviously this poor woman as well, her name was Janet Long, and she was obviously senile by her, you know, the way we looked at the nowadays, but they had no concept of that back then. And when they were lighting the fires, she actually commented that they were trying to warm her up in the winter. That's a level she was at, and yet she was burnt at the stake for that. It's, you know, I'd like to end that happy ending, but uh, <laughs> that, that was the last person done for witchcraft. Uh, 
Certainly, I don't know about other things, you'll probably do it out there, the story of <laughs> Certainly in the civilised parts of Scotland, uh, nobody's been done for witchcraft anyway. Uh, yep, oh, I was going to do a story as well, but is that my time up? I think it is pretty much. Why not? One tiny story. Uh, yeah. I'll, 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 one tiny or a wee thing, and I talked about this in the show actually at the Fringe. Uh, 1830, September 4th, the Indian Removal Act was passed. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Trail of Tears before, or the Cherokee and various other tribes where he moved 1,500 miles for the homeland. And uh, I'll begin this story really by telling you a quote from the Pope of all people. Right? Uh, the Pope says, I'm going to sell all the Catholic Church's riches and solve poverty. Kidding on, didn't he say that? That's... No <laughs> <laughs> chance. Uh, what the Pope said uh, in 1527, this was, as uh, you know, the colonisation of Americans, uh, Americans was in earnest. He said, I declare that the natives, although they be not Christian, shall in no way be deprived of their liberty or possessions. And spoiler alert, they were. Yeah. And the, the, sad, the sad aspect of this, and I'll finish this, is that what essentially caused them to remove that is that the Cherokee, etc., the only way they could survive was by effectively westernising to an extent, but they'd done it too well. And their farmland actually became the most prosperous in America. And then before we know it, they were kicked off the land. And yeah, so yeah, don't westernise too well. I think it's the moral, <laughs> the moral of that story, sadly. Yeah, again, I'd love to end that happy ending, but it's, it's not. It's <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So I've got another segue piece on the 4th of September, this time 1774. Midshipman James Colnett was sailing with British explorer Captain James Cook on board the ship Resolution and was the first European to sight an island which Cook then named New Caledonia. Why? Because the northeast of the island reminded him of Scotland. They landed and were amicably welcomed by the Melanesians. The island had been inhabited since the time of the Lapita, so circa 1600 BC to 500 AD. They were navigators and agriculturalists who covered a large area of the Pacific. Cook stayed for seven days. He admired the locals' horticultural knowledge and irrigated taro plantations. He noted their clothing, which included penis wrappers for men and short petticoats from plantain fibre for women. I don't know if that's going to catch on. Uh, their ornaments, houses, foods, utensils, weapons and sailing double canoes. Cook gave a couple of dogs to the chief tea boomer and a couple of pigs to another. Contact with Europeans only became more frequent after 1840 when sandalwood traders came to harvest the trees and then the first missionaries from the London Missionary Society and the Marist Brothers arrived. Cannibalism, however, was widespread and in 1849 the crew of the American ship Cutter was killed and eaten by the Puma clan. As the sandalwood trade declined, islanders were then taken through trickery and deception for forced labour in the sugarcane plantations in Fiji and Queensland. <coughs> This was known as blackbirding. In 1853, under orders from Emperor Napoleon III, uh, an ad a French admiral took formal possession of New Caledonia. And from 1864 <coughs> to 1897, France sent about 22,000 criminals and political prisoners there. Many natives died of smallpox and measles brought by the Europeans, and the population fell by more than 50% between 1878 and 1921. Since uh, 1946, New Caledonia has been an overseas territory of France and French citizenship had been granted to all the uh, population from 1953 
But independence was rejected by a large majority in the referendum in 1954. And in a second referendum held just last year, 57% of voters chose to remain with France. Uh, New Caledonian soils contain about 25% of the world's nickel resources, so it will remain of interest, I think, to larger nations. Our third guest is Daniel Downey. So Daniel's originally from Dingwall, if I remember correctly, right, yeah, and is now resident in, in Edinburgh. Yeah, very good. His show at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe was called Hour of Scotland, in which he took an irreverent look at Scotland's history and culture. He recently started running comedy walking tours in Edinburgh with the aim of bringing the stories and history of the cobble streets of Edinburgh's old town alive whilst making the participants laugh. Now, it's unclear how many tourists are aware that Montebank, the name of Daniel's tour, means a person who deceives others, a charlatan, yeah. especially yeah. to trick them out of their money. Yeah. In all honesty, it's a tour that's mainly comprised of jokes about Minchies and Susan Boyle, to be honest with you. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's very much masquerading as a historically relevant tour. But, um, <laughs> Is that me, Richard? Yes, why not? Yeah. Well, thanks. And, uh, well, guys, I'm here to talk to you about the Earl of Lennox, uh, Matthew Stewart, and he is significant because he was the father-in-law and the uncle. Uh, I know that's your thing in Fife, right? You know, Glen Roth, uh, you can be married, your husband, stroke uncle, of Mary Queen of Scots. Now, I'm sure my lovely learned audience in front of me this evening, you guys know all about Mary Queen of Scots, right? But for any of the listeners listening to the podcast, if you don't know much about Mary Queen of Scots, all you really need to know is Mary's the most written about figure from Scottish history. She was pasty white, she was ginger, she loved a round of golf, she loved a bevy, she took absolutely no shit off of tour Presbyterian men such as John Knox, she was married three times, implicated in the murder of one of her husbands, spent most of the adult life in prison, was eventually murdered by a family member. I think that makes Mary Queen of Scots the most Scottish person who ever existed. <laughs> She was raised in France, for Christ's sake. Yeah. I mean, an absolute hero. But, yeah, basically, Mary, uh, Mary returned to Scotland in 1561 as a Catholic monarch of a newly Protestant country. In the 13 years that Mary had been in France, Scotland had undergone the Reformation. So we've got this Catholic monarch in charge of this newly Protestant country, which basically made Mary about as popular as a Mexican woman breastfeeding in Tub Tower. You know I mean? it, was, uh, it wasn't a great start, to be fair, right? But maybe she manages to win people around through her sheer force of personality alone. And she kind of wins over the naysayers. And in the end, it's not Mary's religion that's her downfall, it's her choice in men. That's right, ladies, it's her choice in men. You see, on the 29th of July, 1565, Mary marries her cousin, yeah, right? Lord Henry Darnley, right? Now, Darnley is a very, very dashing lad. Uh, he's, oh, by the way, Darnley, sorry, is the son of the Earl of Lennox. Um, he's very dashing, he's very handsome, but he's a bad egg. He's not a good lad. He's uh, an alcoholic, he's a womanizer, he's a gambler, he doesn't turn up to meetings of the Privy Council, he's riddled with syphilis. He's perfect for the Tory front benches, to be fair, right? But, uh, but no idea. So Mary, take, Mary takes the very, very sensible decision of refusing him the crown matrimonial. So basically what that means is, even though we're married, you're not allowed to be the king. He was very much the Prince Philip of his day, in the words. <laughs> Probably less racist, to be fair, though. You trust him behind the Land Rover as well, right? Um, <laughs> but after being refused the crown matrimonial, uh, Darren Lee goes in a half, and he refuses even to attend the christening of his own son, James VI. And uh, rumours are rife at that time that the Earl of Lennox, Matthew Stewart, his dad, he has a plan to make the infant child, the, what would go on to be James VI, the King of Scotland, and get rid of Mary and make Darnley the regent. So basically what this means is he would rule in place of the, the infant king. 
Now these are rumours that basically get Darnley killed because in uh, February of 1567, Henry Darnley is killed in the Scottish gunpowder plot. Yeah, take note, English people. When we do a gunpowder plot in this country, we make sure the guy actually dies. You know what I mean? It's, and even then, by the way, it wasn't the gunpowder that killed him. The explosion did absolutely nothing. He was found strangled in the gardens of Kirkafield in Edinburgh. But what I've learned from this is that gunpowder has a 0% success rate when it comes to... <laughs> so we just stick to the classics, the strangling, the stabbing, the five classics as they were. <laughs> now, anyway, um, most people are fairly convinced that the man who's responsible for the murder of Henry Darnley is James Hepburn, the Earl of Bothwell, right? And so the Earl of Lennox, he wants his opportunity to accuse Bothwell. And he's given the opportunity in April of 1567 as well. Uh, Mary gives him the opportunity to accuse him in court in Edinburgh. Now, Lennox, he's allowed to take six men to the court hearing. So of course, he takes 3,000. Unfortunately for him, the Earl of Bothwell, he decides that he's gonna meet him in Linlithgow with 4,000 men. And so, basically, Bothwell wins this big dick competition. Lennox is forced to go back with his tail between his legs, and he's never ever accused. Now, Mary's dealings with the Earl of Bothwell after the assassination attempt, they cause a lot of revulsion in Scotland. But when she then goes on to marry the guy, it turns into full rebellion. So this is in 1567. Now, obviously, I've only got five minutes to talk to you guys about this. A lot of water passes underneath the bridge between then and 1571 when Lennox dies. But basically, try and summarise it the best I can, uh, Mary is forced to basically surrender herself to the, the Protestant lords at the Battle of Carberry Hill. She's imprisoned in Loch Leven Castle in Kinross. Uh, she's forced to abdicate her throne to her stepbrother, James Stewart, the Earl of Murray. Um, so basically, James VI, the infant child, <coughs> becomes a king. Mary then escapes from prison, but she's then uh, defeated at the Battle of Langside, and she makes the infamous decision to then escape into England where she thinks her, inverted commas, sister queen, Elizabeth I, will take pity on her. Of course, we all know what happens next. Actually, what happens is she spends the rest of her adult life in prison. She's eventually beheaded in Fotheringhay Castle. Now, despite that, at this time in 1570 and 1571, there was still a lot of support for Mary. And the Hamiltons were kind of one of the big Marians, the big supporters of Mary. They actually assassinated Earl of Murray, her um, half-brother, who was the, the regent at that time at Linlithgow. And that makes the Earl of Lennox the new regent of Scotland. Now it's quite a turnaround because Lennox had been frozen out in the rough wings. He had chosen the wrong side. He was kind of told to stay out of Scotland. And he now had what his son Darnley never had. He had power. He was the most powerful man in Scotland. He was now the regent to the king. And on the 4th of September on this day in 1571, a parliament is called in Stirling Castle. And in, in attendance in this um, parliament is the five-year-old infant king, James VI. Now, what Lennox doesn't know is that the keeper of Edinburgh Castle, Sir William Kirkcaldy, he had sent 400 men and a kind of commando raid to go to Stirling Castle to try and snatch the infant king. It's always Kirkcaldy, isn't it? And always the troublemakers, Kirkcaldy, right? Now, eventually, the, the actual raid on Stirling Castle doesn't work. They don't manage to snatch the king. But the Earl of Lennox is killed in the kind of melee. So it's on this day that he was killed. And basically, in my mind, he fulfilled his destiny. Because the thing is, ladies and gentlemen, Matthew Stewart, Earl of Lennox, he was a royal Stuart. He was part of the Stuart lineage. And if you know anything about the Stuarts, 
they are kind of predestined. Their, their lives are kind of like a Scottish World Cup qualifying campaign, right? It can be full of optimism and hope at the start, but ultimately everything's going to go tits up. <laughs> You're going to go and find out, and you're basically, it's going to be over by September 4th. So, uh, <laughs> so that's it. On this day, the Earl of Lennox was killed um, at Stirling Castle. So thank you very much for your time. <laughs> I can't see his Bluetooth has been touching me up underneath this table. It's quite distracting, you can't see on the podcast. Like the, uh, so the, a test on that event. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the last segue piece that I'm going to do is about uh, the opening of the Fourth Road Bridge, which was 4th of September 1964. Now, for 800 years or so, the only way of crossing the Fourth Estuary was either by ferry between South and North Queen Street or uh, in, the, in the latter hundred years, the cantilever Fourth Rail Bridge had opened in 1890, allowing the crossing by train. So the idea for a road crossing was first mooted in 1946, and the cost then was estimated at six million pounds. When it was built, it was 163 feet at its highest point, uh, hopefully still is, uh, with a central span of 3,300 feet. Uh, the bridge required 39,000 tonnes of steel, and 30,800 miles of wire in the suspension cables, which is quite hard to get a head around. That's more than going around the earth once, isn't it? Uh, the new suspension bridge could carry vehicles, cyclists and pedestrians across the fourth. It was then the largest suspension bridge in the world outside the USA and the fourth longest bridge in the whole world. Up to 400 men worked on the bridge. Three men lost their lives, uh, but others were saved by safety nets. For the opening ceremony, which cost about £25,000, soldiers of Lowland regiments from the south linked up symbolically with Highland Brigade from the north. Uh, 25 Royal Navy ships fired a salute of guns and after a brief opening speech from the Queen, there was also a flypast. The Queen was driven across the bridge before returning by ferry. It was the last trip by anyone on the ferry, apparently. 30 of the 70 men who had worked on the four ferry boats were re-employed on the new bridge, collecting tolls. Uh, I still remember the tolls. Uh, traffic rose steadily from 4 million vehicles in 1964 to 23 million vehicles uh, in 2002. At its peak it was carrying 65,000 vehicles a day. And the bridge was actually listed, which I hadn't realised, on 3rd of April 2001. On to our fourth guest. Uh, it's Bruce Fumi. Bruce lives in Blackford near Perth and is another former winner of the Scottish Comedian of the Year competition. Again, I can't believe how long ago it was, 2014. Mm. Yes, again, it just seems like a couple of years ago. Um, he's been described as funny, 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 and that's just his attire. I don't know what you're wearing that day. Oh, well, it says girls are just drawn to the big man in his kilt. Who's this? This is on your website. Is it? It is. <laughs> so I don't know why you're complaining. Uh, apparently, uh, talking about the big man is kilts, the quote is, I've never seen so many women in the front row smile due to their allocated seating. No, <laughs> you're letting, but you're letting us down tonight, no, aren't you? I'm definitely going to sack the woman who, who wrote my website. Oh, I see. <laughs> so you'd actually write your own stuff. Yeah, okay. now, now I think, now I realise, she must fancy me. Oh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? All it these years, like I didn't know. Like um, so your show at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe was called Ah, lots of A's to get up the was, yeah. You've been invited, uh, you sorry, you've been Have involved. Have you been invited to a comp? Have you been yeah, involved you in a comedy show that wasn't your yeah, fault? Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, 
so it, it was funny when it was on the, the, the program, honestly. <laughs> yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't read well. It doesn't translate yeah. the, ah, thing. No. So, so that was uh, interesting that the word abyss was also used in your description, which I think was in yours, Vlad. So I don't know what it is about the abyss, but you were telling stories about looking into the abyss of middle age with the maturity of the teenager. So is that right? Don't, don't tell me she wrote I, that as no, well. No, I, <laughs> I, I am just at the age where I remember nothing. To, which doesn't relate well to well the next five minutes. Yeah, okay. So, uh, hi, and uh, I've, I haven't listened to the first of you guys. I wish I'd written more jokes. I'll be honest. <laughs> um, uh, the, the 4th of September uh, is a natural. I'm, I would suggest to you that the 4th of September is the most significant day in Scotland's history. And the reason that I say that is because I've got to shoehorn some material into this next five minutes about that date. And uh, that's the reason why. Uh, but in actuality, I think it's true. And I'll tell you why. Uh, today is the date on which Alexander III was born. Okay? Now, Alexander III was the last of the Canmore kings. And for people living in Dunfermline, you should know about the Canmore Kings, okay? But let's talk about how they started, all right? Uh, the first of the Canmore Kings, Malcolm Canmore, was of course the guy who killed Macbeth. Now most, for most of you, many of you, what you'll know about Macbeth is, will be what you've read from that bullshit play. Do you know what I mean? The, no, it was lies. It was lies from start to finish. There was more fake news in Shakespeare's Macbeth than there is in the BBC weather forecast. You know what I mean? You know the story, uh, Macbeth and Banquo are fighting for a good King Duncan and they're on their way back from the battle and Macbeth had an awfully good day at the battle, killing lots of folk and that. And they come across three witches and what the first one says, Hail Macbeth, Dane of Glams, the second one says, Hail Macbeth. Dean of Cawdor, the third one says, Hail Macbeth, King that shall be. Effectively, we've looked at your CV, we think you're entitled to promotion, is what they were saying, right? And um, they were like, oh, Mac Macbeth and Bank, well, what's this all about? The witches disappear. They go to forests, they meet uh, King Duncan, and he makes, oh, on the way, somebody comes and says, oh, you've been made Dean of Cawdor. He says, oh, wow, this is, and he goes in and sees King Duncan, oh, I'm coming to your house tonight for a big slap up dinner because you've killed a lot of folk today and Macbeth's all excited what does he do? He writes a letter home to his wife to tell her that he's coming home, the king's come to their house for a big slap up dinner and a party that night and of course the letter gets to Lady Macbeth before Macbeth gets home because that was before they privatised the post office <laughs> and um, uh, by the time Macbeth gets there Lady Macbeth is all excited She's like, oh, we, uh, you, we could, you're going to be king. You're gonna, well, what will they do? The king's come here. We'll need to kill the king. Oh, we can't do that, says Macbeth. Oh, yes, we'll need to kill the king, says Lady. We can't do that. Oh, we'll need to kill. Do you know what it's like living with a nagging wife? Do you know what I mean, right? Every day, you know, have you cut the grass? Have you put the bins out? When are you going to murder the rightful king? Yara, yara, yara. <laughs> it's constant, right? Because she's all excited, she wants to be, she's been doing a Primark already and got herself a new outfit, and she's all excited. And so the king gets there that night and Lady Macbeth says to Macbeth, you leave it to me, 
and I'll go and get him and I'll go and get his, his bodyguards fish and then in the middle of the night they'll be sleeping you can go and murder the king right? and so Macbeth he goes away she's got her fish in the middle of the night he goes and murders the king uh, early in the morning Macduff arrives at the castle everyone's still got a hangover he finds that the king's dead and everyone's oh Macbeth goes it was the bodyguards he kills the bodyguards and uh, uh, Duncan's two sons, Malcolm and Donald Ban, think this looks a bit dodgy, and they run off to England to Hebrides, whatever. And uh, Macbeth is made king. Macduff thinks this looks a bit dodgy, and he buggers off to England. Macbeth goes, goes and kills Macduff's family, and uh, then it goes back to the witches. They go, oh, we've done something, oh, and then uh, doing in England. Uh, when Macduff gets there, Malcolm goes, oh, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get the kingdom. And he come back and then uh, Macduff, who's not a woman born, kills Macbeth. Now, we've all been to parties like that from time to time. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, Jesus, I've just realised, I've not actually got in the story, it's four and a half minutes gone. Right? <laughs> so they, they think it was, they, they, they time this, right? They, <laughs> It was because none of that shit happened, right? Okay? <laughs> but it was, Macbeth did kill Duncan, but in battle, not in his bed, right? And then, and Malcolm, his son, wasn't this, his son was nine at the time, right? Malcolm, and he does flee down to England. Then 14 years later, he comes back with an English army, an English mercenary army, right? To take over and kill Macbeth. And this is a story that's written, right? And it's all bullshit, right? The point is that. Uh, Malcolm killing Macbeth, the last great Celtic king of Scotland, freedom! Well, him, right, Malcolm started the Canmore kings. Alexander, who was born in this day in history, was the last of the Canmore kings. And what was important about him was not his birth, but his death. Because his death changed things. And that dynasty changed things. Because when Malcolm came to Scotland, he came with an English mercenary army, okay, to defeat the last great Celtic king of Scotland. And so what he had to do is he had to reward these troops. So he had to give them lands, right? And this started feudalism in Scotland, right? Before that, there's been no such thing as hereditary kingship before. This whole thing about usurping the king was nonsense, right? And he started, Malcolm started, his son was the first person to claim to be king of Scotland by hereditary right. Yeah? He also married Margaret, and a Saxon princess, and it started the Anglicisation of Scotland. And by the time it gets to Alexander, the last uh, of these Canmore kings, right, he's married to an English lassie as well, right? Now she's died, right? And he's got, he's got uh, bears, but a lassie, a granddaughter and that. So he needs, you know what, they need sons, don't they, right? So he marries his French bit, right? Because you know what the French lasses are like, eh, right? They're metal with the shagging and that. Right? So, <laughs> and because he's thinking, I need some sons, right? And then early on in his marriage, he's heading back to Edinburgh uh, to Kinghorn and Fife to get back home to this young French wife. And he goes, oh, there's ill omens. There's always ill omens, isn't there, eh? Do you know what I mean? I'm going back to Perthshire the night. I bet there's still omens for me getting back to Perthshire. <laughs> and no, didn't he get big crosses? He gets across all right. And then he goes right the head of his entourage, trying to get racing back to get to this new bride. And he falls on his horse and he breaks his neck. And when the courtiers arrive there, the king is lying dead. 
and the horse is standing there saying it was to me he whipped marsh and finally the deer bags went off he went over the handlebars right and this end of the Canmore Kings meant that you know there was no sun to take over blah 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 and you had two groups competing the bushes and the Balliols and they're always going to be civil war and Edward the first offers to help out uh, like Vladimir Putin's been helping out in Crimea right <laughs> and what I'm saying is that this changes the whole of our history and if I'd had more time I would have told you more about it right and I've already talked for too long but what I'm saying is this day in history when Alexander III was born changed everything for the rest of Scotland in all time and if you want to know more about it text me <laughs> <laughs> thank you Bruce To say, I, I, of all the podcasts I've done, I think this is a, I couldn't do anyone else down. They're very, very highly educated panel, so I'm very impressed. Well, yeah, I'm just speaking about your own history. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, anyway, so we come to the second half of the show where we uncover some alternative histories of <coughs> Dunfermline. So I'm going to ask the panel a question at the start. So, who are some of the famous kings and queens buried in Dunfermline? I think you probably would all know this. From your extensive knowledge, Queen Margaret. Correct. Yes. She, uh, she, yeah. She was. She was buried. Well, no. She was initially buried elsewhere, and then she was reinterred here after she was canonised, wasn't she? And then after the Reformation, they did not take her body parts away, and some people, you know, what they were like, they used to kind of keep. Mm. Do you know what I mean? As a memento, Mary had his head. Yeah, Mary Queen of Scots had her head. She obviously thought I might need a spear. <laughs> and she eventually, I think, did she not have it, Bruce, for when like she was giving birth to James VI? Like she wanted it for like good luck. Just a weird oh, thing to have, like another set of eyes just there, like dead eyes in the corner. Just I thought it was just to practice and see if she'd be diluted. <laughs> <laughs> how, did, how did you start that? I just want to. <laughs> I might seem like a filthy one, but he started that. Right? <laughs> okay. But so no, she, she eventually did not she go to French, she's got body pumps in the Okay, you, you've skipped through the whole of the history in about 30 seconds. Uh, I didn't know how much time. You, you've seen um, how good I am at observing time. <laughs> <laughs> it's now going the opposite way. So, okay, so you're saying about Mary Queen of Scots, yes. So Mary Queen of Scots in 1560 had Margaret's head removed uh, to Edinburgh Castle as a relic to assist her in childbirth. Not quite sure yeah. how that works. That's an obvious joke about Washington. I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to <laughs> You're just going to sow the seeds, Jamie. I like that. Can yeah. I say the word? Yeah. Uh, yeah. From my side, for anyone who doesn't know Margaret, so, but yeah, I'm going to be done anything about Margaret. Just talked about her head. She, yeah, uh, she's Scotland's only. Death now, so Sorry, yeah. Richard. Aye. She's Scotland. She's Scotland's only canonised saint, and. Um, what am I, her, does anyone know what her, you know, like if you want to become a saint, you've got to perform a miracle, right? Well, I reckon that Margaret's is potentially the most Scottish because it's the durest and most boring of all the miracles I've ever heard of, right? Because Margaret's miracle was she dropped a Bible in a river, right? And when she picked it up, it was dry. <laughs> It was covered in something. That is, that, that is Margaret's. Like, you know you're clutching at straws when that's like your miracle. Do you know what I mean? And they, did, am I right in saying they've got the Bible and has anyone been to St. Margaret's Chapel in Edinburgh Castle? It's, uh, it's the oldest building and basically uh, King David uh, built it, I believe, as a kind of tribute to his, to his mall. 
And I think they've got the, the Bible. I don't know if it's the actual Bible, but they've got like the Irish Bible in there. So. To be fair, it's dry. It's dry, man. It's dry. It's dry. It's dry. <laughs> if you just put it in rice, it's okay. Uh, exactly. Yeah. exactly. I just think if, if, if you did invent a wash, a drying, tumble dryer in the 11th century, that is a bit of a miracle. Do you know what I mean? I think well, that's a fair point, Grace. Yeah, you're right now. But she would probably be recalled by the manufacturer. Oh, the slip file, okay? I know, you can't be dry. You're dry cleaning your Bible once. Is the real reason not that she essentially, that she was canonised by the Catholic Church, was because she transformed Scotland from the Celtic Christian church, and she basically Catholicised the yeah. church in Scotland, and yet Rangers supporters never sing about it. <laughs> so she she instigated <laughs> she she instigated the restoration of Iona Abbey. She helped the Benedictine order to establish a monastery in Dunfermline, and she established obviously the ferries at Queensbury. Right. Yeah, she ruled the ferries, didn't she? That's she's yeah, so Queen's Ferry is called Queen's Ferry because uh, Margaret Cammer basically set up the ferry across the fourth to encourage pilgrimage to St Andrews. We, we could and, do uh, and uh, I think that before uh, St Margaret, most of the, the Scottish kings were buried in Iona, right? So Bruce, you'll probably is Macbeth is the last one to be buried in Iona, is that right? I would question whether or not Macbeth was actually buried in Iona. Well, anyway, the point being that since Margaret, uh, she basically, <laughs> we, had the, we had this idea of kind of Christianity and it was what you would call the Celtic Church and it was kind of based in Iona. And then since St. Margaret came along, she then starts the ties with uh, kind of Rome. And that's when, as kind of Bruce says, the kind of more Anglicanisational one. Catholicism. Catholicism, sorry, man. It's very, but she's, a, she's a very significant. Uh, but you guys are from Dunfermline, you know this, right? So where, where was Margaret born? Hungary. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Ma Margaret the Magyar. Isn't that a good name? Why was she born in Hungary then? Uh, I think it was because like her grand or something like that, King Canute. Her father was, was exiled. Something like that. Her father was the Saxon uh, prince. She was the, uh, exiled by King Canute. Uh, uh, when the Danes invaded and then obviously yeah. no long after, Norman conquest and Anglo-Saxons under Milken anyway. So she returned to Texas. And she took a lot of refugees, didn't she, from England, like from the wars, like um, yeah. with the Normans ah, exactly, and she encouraged yeah, them a lot to come up here and so leave the Olympics. But these were bad news to these boys, they're very much like champions of the When In Margaret's league in the Champions League would have been Sweden, Ukraine and Hungary, because those are the three countries she stayed in before visiting England. So her family moved back in 1057 because her father was, became a possible successor to her great-uncle, who was the childless King Edward the Confessor. But her father died immediately after landing, which is a little bit suspicious, I would suggest. Um, <laughs> can just, uh, can so, I say yes. something about Dunfermline Abbey? That's, I don't know, if it, you just talked about Dunfermline Abbey. Uh, is this related to St Margaret? No, it's related to me taking some people from Texas there. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know if it's appropriate to tell, but I thought, <laughs> it was, I thought it was a funny wee story, eh? Because if you gave me tours and that, right? And I had this group of four Texans, and I took them to Dunfermline Abbey, right? And you know what it's like doing there, getting parked, eh? Right? So you're like, no, eh? 
No, it is. It's, it's, so I, I, I drove them to and I said, look, I tell you, you get out. And I, I spoke to them and as if I wasn't Scottish. Yeah, you know what I mean? I said, now you get out there and if you go into the Abbey, then I'll find parking and I'll come back and I'll get you, right? Because uh, I thought I wouldn't. And as it was, right, they got the, the motor and went. And I just, I got the first parking space. I was like, oh, you're yeah, the answer. And I went, but by the time I went, put coins in the meat and that. And I came back and I couldn't see, they've obviously gone into the Abbey by this stage, right? And I go into the Abbey and you know, a lot of these places are run by Visit Scotland, Historic Scotland and that. Whereas your Abbey uh, are run by these old women that have been knitted. <laughs> 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 and they're lovely, they didn't get me wrong, I'm not no, no dissing them, right? Do you know what I mean, right? Because our pensioners have got to do something, haven't they? Do you know what I mean, right? And I went in to this wee knitted woman, and I says, um, I says, are there any Texans in here? I've just dropped off four people from Texas, and I just, I said I'd pick her up, she says, oh, no, son, no, there's no. And I said, oh, damn it, mate, what am I going to do? The whole way, mate, I thought, oh, damn, I wish I should never have. And then I went round to the, you know, the palace bit and looked a bit, asked the folk and didn't know, no, nothing. I was like, oh shit, what will I do? And I went round to the library, all the places, the precinct there, to go and look for, our, look for these four Texans, right? Because as a tour guide, if you lose them, you get a bad trip advisor. <laughs> and I thought, Jesus, this is going to be terrible. This is going to be the first time I've lost. I mean, I've killed a couple, but I've not actually lost any And I was like, oh, what? And it goes all around that whole area, right? And eventually I retraced my steps again and went back into the Abbey and here the four folk, I, I can see them. Do you know what the lot of the Robert the Bruce thing is underneath there? And I can see them. And the old, the wee knitted wifey, I'm like, darling, remember I said to you, I was looking for some folk for Texas and had they been in, and you said no that they hadn't, and they're right there, they're the very people. Um, she says, oh, they weren't they wearing the hats. <laughs> <laughs> It's the closest to a story about Margaret Cannon. <laughs> it's a very mammal thing. She could have been Margaret Cannon. You alluded to someone else then who was also buried in... Robert Bruce. So Robert the Bruce, yes. So I just happened to have a picture of him. So how did Robert the Bruce die? Oh, he died in his bed, didn't he? He died in actual coin. Well, there's... there's is he, did he have... Did he have... The <laughs> 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 about whether he had dead, like leprosy or that or not, and they've they've looked at his skull and they've kind of done all the DNA yeah. testing and all that kind of stuff. Nobody knows. We could just make up something. Well, he was reportedly a victim of la grosse maladie, which uh, refers to leprosy. But in the 14th century, writers just called any major skin disease leprosy. Um, but other people have suggested uh, a whole list of things. So could it, he could have suffered from eczema, tuberculosis, syphilis, motor neuron disease, cancer, or a series of strokes. Can you Which die of oh, it? That's oh, terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm scared I might not wake up tomorrow. Hey, my elbows are going to kill me, Vlad. So the king Okay, right. So the king's body was embalmed and his sternum sawn open so his heart could be removed. And that was placed in a silver casket, which was to be worn around Sir James Douglas's neck, while Sir Simon Lockhart held the key. 
I know which I prefer to have hold of. <laughs> um, and Robert's viscera were interred in the chapel of St. Surf, which is uh, in present-day Dumbarton. Uh, the king's body, though, was carried from Cardross by carriage to Dunfermline Abbey, which is where it was lying. So the heart and the body were in, and the viscera were in the separate places. Did you take the spoon as well, Robert? Did you take the heart as well? I love this, Jamie, because they wanted to take it, he wanted to take it on a crusade. But there was none happening at the time. So the closest was like, right, well, we'll just go to Spain then and we'll just lob it at some moors. That's close enough, right? And that's basically what they did. Right. I imagine getting that through customs in the Was it what he, 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 he throws the heart at him? He, he shouts, his, what's it? What's on he brave heart. On, is it on? Is it actually on? Yeah, that's right? brave heart. Was, was on brave heart. Robert Bruce. Yeah. There you go. Good. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yes. So we're, we're just jumping ahead. Yeah, we're, 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 yeah, so the party that that went to Spain, so they were they were welcomed by the King of Spain, and they so they took the heart into this battle against the Moors because they were the nearest Muslims they could find in Spain, yeah. uh, in Grenada. That was still um, there. You, you cannot conclude that the Crusades off. Yeah. Uh, the right. So it okay, does count. I stop there. You'll think the Crusades just a holy land, but uh, okay. the Baltic area mm. is a Crusade as well. Mm. You can call them reconquista. This is a bit of a. Do you know what this feels like? This, you know, at a party where everybody's pinched, and the one driver <laughs> guy, <laughs> Rich is like, I'm going to drive these four fuckers home tonight. We are driving all over the place. Oh, I'll tell you, remember? But the worst thing is. I'm just trying to block that The driver's lost. <laughs> uh, so, uh, in 1920, the heart was discovered by archaeologists and reburied. This, so, so it, it was in Spain, it went back to Melrose Abbey, uh, it was rediscovered in 1920, reburied, but they didn't mark where they'd reburied it. Hmm. So it was rediscovered in 1996, the casket was unearthed during construction work. We, we, the same happened to us where my granddad's bollocks. My granny my granny cut them off and buried them, right? And then we, we dug them up later and it was an accident, we didn't know, right? And then my mum she buried them again, never mentioned where they were to anyone. So we weren't able to get like so they buried them together. Together. or did they split them up? <laughs> we, well here's a question I wish given the fact I was I was working on the spot at speed, I didn't think of the scenario for <laughs> each individual bot. You know, uh, Richard, there's another significant, was actually the, the rediscovery of Robert the Bruce's tomb itself, which was uh, kind of Sir Walter Scott, who kind of pushed for an inquiry to try and find this out. He'd recently rediscovered the, the Scottish Crown Jewels in Edinburgh Castle that had been locked away in a vault. And that's really, really significant because at that time, since the Enlightenment, there had been, uh, Scotland had a real kind of identity crisis. We were caught up in this idea of being British, but we didn't really know what our place was in that. And so, the discovery of Bruce's tomb led to a huge, huge surge in nationalism at that time as well. And Sir Walter Scott was obviously a real driving force of the, the idea that we've got now of being Scottish, of kind of tartan and the kind of bagpipes and like that. Sir Walter Scott was very much in the, kind of the visit of uh, King Edward IV in 1822 as well. Was it? George IV. George IV, sorry, yeah. In 22, uh, he wanted to do it in kind of like Highland kind of regalia as opposed to the more kind of dour Presbyterianism of the South at that time. And he was a big kind of driving force in the ideas of what we would call Highland culture now being considered 
Scottish culture. And that can come back to basically the discovery of Bruce's tomb was a big, big thing for that because people were then starting to look at, well, actually, what is it to be Scottish? Because they've been caught up in this idea of being British for so long. But Scott was a unionist. He was, yeah, which I always find interesting is that he kind of rescued the idea of, of Jacobinism through his novels and stuff. Like yeah, that. yeah, but by selling tap and tap to Queen Victoria. <laughs> But, like, I think he does have his place, yeah. though, Bruce. This is just becoming a debate now, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I know. Like, this is becoming a bit political, isn't yeah. it? The gold brothers of his age. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but he's got a. Seven times that. shots in the But, uh, yeah, no, but I mean, he was, yeah, he was a, a big unionist. But I think. By the same token, a lot of the things that we would describe as being Scottish to this day and the things that, ironically, you're probably going to see on yes marches and stuff like that, we wouldn't have any of them if it wasn't for mm. Sir Walter Scott. And in my opinion, the rediscovery of Robert the Bruce's tomb as well in the kind of early early 19th century. And the majority of towns were actually created in the, the 19th exactly, century. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, it's all fake, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you always hit, like, you manage to get us all to always end in a miserable note. Like, that's genuine. Like, it's, it's an absolute skill that you've got. He didn't mention Abyss, though, in his, in his show description. Here's, here's Robert the Bruce's resting place. Um, picture here. So, uh, conscious of time, we've started late, so just very briefly, I want to introduce another character. Uh, I don't think we've even got time to talk about Andrew Carnegie, but then we've probably been. It's like teaching grammar with Sir Kegg's expense for being here. This guy here, uh, John Struthers, he was born in Brucefield in 1767, so uh, just outside Dunfermline then. His father was uh, a wealthy mill owner and linen merchant. Any of the audience aware of this chap? Is that just Sir, yeah, yeah, is sir John Struthers, MD? Yeah, but he wasn't when he was born. No, it wasn't when he was born, but I, I think... Leaping ahead again there, yeah, well, he's already, yeah, he's already been knighted. So. <laughs> No. no, it's okay. I had a joke about him, but fuck Oh, you. no, no, no. Can't control this panel. Was his sister and shrubber? She made she made a good fish and chips supper, yeah. Was that a joke? Was that a joke? That wasn't a joke. That wasn't a joke. That was fun, no, it's too late now. You know, Jeremy, you've done that. No, I just, I was, because earlier on today, right? Now, this isn't going to work now. Right? But earlier on today, I was showing my son this, like, all right, I've got to talk about this thing. And his, his, his name's actually Sir John Struthers, M-D-P-R-C-S-E-F-R-S-E. Now, my son is there. Say that. Oh, it was just for the end. Yeah, it's this is the worst tackles you could get, aren't they? From fellow comedians. Exactly. Do you know what the part in the bottom of the rope is? And then a fight broke out. Do you know what I mean? He was a famous anatomist, and I like your word dissecting your joke right now. Yeah. Make no bones about it, yeah. I have to get a pun in there somewhere. So, yeah, so he radically transformed anatomy. He was a professor at Aberdeen University for 26 years. I could say a lot about how he transformed anatomy, but uh, one thing that he did uh, was he gave his name to something called the ligament of Struthers, which is in this diagram here. And basically, this is present in 1% of us. 
Uh, and it's like a vestigial, is that the right word? Only 1% of people, 1 of people have this thing. 1% of people have this thing and it, it serves no function to us as humans. But if you trace back through evolution, it does for our ancestors. And this was demonstrated by Struthers and was used by Darwin in his Descent of Man in 1871 as one of the proofs uh, of evolution. Is this what Robin the Bruce died of? Yeah. <laughs> it could actually be. Uh, this was one of the uh, specimens that he dissected. It was a whale. Oh, so, I made that last year. I'm hitting Kirkcaldy. So he, he, he was quite good at dissecting and describing whales. So one was washed up at Peterhead in 1870. He brought the entire skeleton of a Sei whale back to the anatomy department and it was suspended overhead in the hall apparently for more than a century. His dissecting room was reported to stink like the deck of a Greenland whaler, which is only something we can imagine. Mm -hmm. He also dissected the humpback Tay whale, which I think is what's pictured here. It was harpooned in the Firth of Tay off Dundee at the end of 1883 and later found dead, towed to Aberdeen, or Stonehaven, sorry, near Aberdeen. It was 40 foot long and had a tail 11 feet, four inches wide. A local entrepreneur, John Woods, bought the whale and displayed it at his yard in Dundee, where 12,000 people paid to see it on the very first day. Struthers was allowed to dissect it when the whale was too badly decomposed for further public exhibition, but even then Woods let the public in to watch the dissection, where a military band played in the background. <laughs> I can't even imagine what this is like. I mean, did they have nose pegs? People did before they had it. Had more interesting lives, I think. Um, so Struthers removed most of the skeleton before Woods had the, fish, uh, the flesh embalmed, and he then took the carcass stuffed on a kind of tour around the UK. And only in the following August was Struthers actually able to remove the skull and the rest of the skeleton. So there we go. That's, that's what anatomists used to get up to, yeah. not just robbing graves and so on. But, uh... he, he was the first, uh, we just... What, what, what do you call yeah. it? Regis, Regis Professor. Regis Professor of Anatomy, the first Regis Professor of Anatomy in Aberdeen. And he was the first guy to come up with the phrase mutton dressed as lamb. Is that right? Yeah, it wasn't as funny as the joke that you wouldn't let me do earlier. <laughs> 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 it's it's <laughs> Can we just thank our guests, please? We have Vladimir Metavish, <laughs> Jamie Galbraith. I'd like to thank the Andre Carnegie Birthplace Museum and the Outlet Festival for allowing us to host the show here tonight. I've got one final on this day though, this is by Albert Schweitzer, if I uh, skip ahead to this chap here. He died on the 4th of September 1965. He was from Alsace, so he considered himself French but wrote mostly in German. He was a theologian. He received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1952. And here are two of his quotes. Number one, there are two means of refuge from the miseries of life, music and cats. Uh, which is ironic coming from an Alsatian. <laughs> uh, and number two, happiness is nothing more than good health and a bad memory. <laughs> Thank you, good night. <laughs>